you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, welcome again. It's so good to see all of you who are here with us in person. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. And again, just want to uh, acknowledge this day and, and wish those of you Happy Mother's Day, recognizing the spectrum of emotions that we can be feeling on this day. Uh, but just know that moms, mother figures, grandmas, all of you, you are prayed for, you are cared for, you are loved. And we hope that you feel appreciated and celebrated this day, but honestly, every day as well. Not just once a year, but hopefully um, that you just feel cared for because you are so precious in God's sight. And you don't have to be a perfect mother because you are God's beloved daughter. And I hope if you learn nothing else today, that you would take home that identity that you are loved by the Most High King, um, by our Heavenly Father, and that you are valued beyond measure. So with that said, we're talking about a brand new series called Remarkable, which could just be for moms, but it's actually not that title. It's looking at this idea of remarkable, looking at miracles through the book of Mark. And now, when we look at um, this idea of miracles, one of the first things that at least I thought of, and um, maybe is consistent with some of you, is this idea of when you think of what, what's a miracle? How do we define miracle? What does that look like in our world? And one of the first things we think about, or I think about, is the 1980 Olympics. I wasn't born yet, but I've heard this call from Al Michaels when he says, do you believe in miracles? Have you guys heard of this call before, this idea of the miracle on ice? What this is, is uh, this question, do you believe in miracles? And what it was, was at the Lake Placid Olympics in 1980, the Winter Olympics, the U.S. was a team of amateurs, like not professional hockey players, amateurs who were um, doing really well in the round-robin tournament. They ended up playing the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union were professionals who had won five out of the previous six gold medals in ice hockey. So they were dominant. It was in Lake Placid. It was a home, you know, it was, it was on American soil. But this was not just the idea of an overmatched American squad that was Again, amateurs trying to face professionals. It was also in the height of the Cold War, and it was the situation in which ideologically there was this idea of the Soviet Union versus America and what this looked like. And so what happens is in this round-robin tournament game, it was the medal round, but it was not the gold medal game that the Americans ended up winning 4-3. to three. And it's one of those times where Al Michaels, who's again, he's a famous sportscaster, he still does calls today. He has this phrase, do you believe in miracles? And they throw up their gloves and they're all excited and they celebrate because this overmatched, under-equipped team ended up beating a world power. And it was more than just a hockey game. In fact, here's a quotation from an anonymous person online. I couldn't find the, the author. It says this, In 2016, Sports Illustrated selected the miracle on ice as the greatest moment in sports history, even more memorable than the Major League Baseball debut of Jackie Robinson. Television turns the U.S. victory in an ice hockey game, impressive yet of only fleeting importance, into a collective experience of nationalistic jubilation among the American public during this Cold War. 
At a time when U.S. power seemed to decline, the miracle on ice enabled millions of American viewers to imagine a different future in which the United States, with its ingenuity, courage, and tenacity, triumphed over the Soviet Union. And so there are times when you think, do you believe in miracles? And we have so many different definitions for miracles that we could look at a a hockey game. Yes, impressive. Yes, that's great. But we could look at that and think, oh, that's a miracle on ice. That's what our national conscience would go to when we think of the word miracle. For some of us, we know people who it is just a miracle if they show up anywhere on time. Right? It is a miracle that we got all of our stuff when we have, you know, when you have young kids and you're trying to bring everything. It's just a miracle if we remembered everything. It's a miracle and we, it, for all these different things. And we use this verbiage so frequently that the idea of a miracle becomes watered down to what actually constitutes an actual miracle. It's either something that's so mundane that we think about all the time, or it's these, thing, these stories that we hear across the world about incredible things that God is doing, and we'll unpack some of those in subsequent weeks in this series, but it's looking at the miracle is either something mundane or it's something far away. So what does it look like for us in this day and age to see, to understand, and to experience what God means when he talks about doing miracles? As if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that I really enjoy reading and I'll reference books several times uh, throughout our time. So I want to point to a book called The Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel. I've talked about Case for Christ recently. Listen to this book uh, probably about two or three weeks ago. And there's a definition of miracle that I want to go with as we look at um, this series. And it says this. It's, It's from someone he's quoting. Let's go to the next slide, please. It says, a miracle is an event brought about by the power of God. It's not just something random that happens. It's not happenstance or coincidence. It's brought about by the power of God that's a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. So we look at the idea of like the sun rising every single day. Yes, that is amazing, but we wouldn't consider that a miracle because that's the, the, the ordinary course of nature. But when we look at Joshua chapter 10, and we're not going to go there this morning, but when we look at the idea that when Joshua is facing a battle and he's fighting the enemy, and he says, God, would you allow the sons to stand still so that we can complete and finalize this enemy and defeat them and vanquish them? Because if the sons ends up um, setting and they get away, then we'll lose the battle, or at least we won't complete the victory. And so it's God allowing the sun to stand still for many more hours in order to achieve the victory that Israel needed. It's something that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. So I want to start right off the bat in the series and the sermon to acknowledge that some of us come from a faith background where we grew up uh, knowing and loving Jesus. And so the idea of the miraculous is not that hard for us to fathom. It's not that hard for us to grasp. There are others of us who are somewhere on our journey with God, and maybe we don't fully believe in miracles. We think that there's always a natural explanation for a supernatural seeming situation. We think that there's always another explanation for it. And so what I want to do is ask that we would step into this series for the next several weeks. And if you're someone that wrestles with the idea of miracles, maybe going and listening to or reading a book like Case for Miracles or looking at what that looks like to see when... In that book, it talks about so many examples of miracles that have been documented, prayers that have been answered, and we're going to unpack some of these as we talk about things in the next few weeks. 
but to set the tone that if we believe that God is working and we believe that God has done miracles and that we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it's what might God be doing in your life? And let's not make miracles something that is so mundane that it's, oh, it's a miracle I found my keys on time. But it's also not something that only happens far away. It's what is God doing now in your life and in my life that has a lasting impact. Will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to dive into our sermon for the rest of this uh, service? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who is part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later throughout the week. God, I pray that um, you would speak. Lord, I pray that um, as we dive into your word, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a way maker. You are a miracle worker. You are someone who does things that we cannot have explanation for except for the explanation being that you have acted and you are doing incredible things. So Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and that you would be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. And as you want to turn there, if you have your Bibles with you, great. Uh, Mark chapter 1, if you have Bibles and you didn't bring one with you, but there's some that are underneath the seats in front of you, if you want to use your phone, all of those are great options. But the sermon title for this is this idea of Jesus' first miracle. And what stands out in this passage is this idea that he taught and he acted with authority. And so the question I want to start off this miracle series with, as well as this specific sermon with, is this. Whose voice has the most authority in your life? Whose voice has the most authority in your life? There are many times when I'm trying to figure out how to navigate a situation, whether with friends or at work, and I'll ask Steph. She's got great wisdom and, and just great insights. So I'll say, what do you think about this? Or is this, is this a good insight or a good um, a way to approach this? And so sometimes she says yes, sometimes she says no, but her voice has great authority for me. For in, in our household, maybe this is like you, um, and maybe it's not, but when it comes to, like, as a dad, the girls will talk to me and they'll ask me a question, but for me, when they ask me a question, it seems like they're just kind of um, asking for advice. And so I'll say, what do you think about this? I'm like, oh, I think about this. And then what do they do? Oh, I'm going to go ask mom and see what she thinks. And so she, my words are advisory to the girls. Her word is more authority in regards to if she says yes or no, that's it. And so we talk about, uh, we see my big fat Greek wedding, the idea that the husband is the head of the house, but the wife is the neck that turns the head whichever way she wants. It's this idea of, this acknowledgement that sometimes, sometimes there's this idea that one voice in the household has more authority than others. That maybe for you, you have a friend that you reach out to and you don't know how to navigate something. Maybe for you, when you're having a health issue, you go and you try to talk about and find out what it is. I hope that your authority when it comes to health issues isn't WebMD because it's always like, I have a broken cuticle and it's like you're going to die tomorrow. So it's like it's very extreme when it comes to that. But this idea of whose voice do you look to for authority? When it comes to uh, driving, there's times when we're going, we're driving in an area that's new and even though I, I, I may vaguely know that directions or vaguely have an idea, it's you put in, you know, your, the address and you start and all of a sudden it's like there's this voice from Siri or from Waze app or from whatever it is that tells you which way to go. And I just, I end up just trusting it and going whichever way it says. And so the 
Apple Maps says, like, it's very direct. When it comes to, to Waze, there's sometimes when it, like, gets you, like, through people's driveways, and it's, like, the third donkey on the left make a right, and, like, it's very specific, but I'm like, okay, if Siri says so, and so there's this idea of that, and so uh, there's, a, there's an example from The Office. I'm not going to show the clip because we don't have time. But in The Office, there's a scene in which Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute are on a call. And they know that things haven't working out, been working out for them. And they have to get onto 307. And so the, the GPS says, turn right. And so Michael Scott, he's uh, lovable. If you were with us a few weeks ago about the personalities, he's a yellow. He's a sanguine. He loves fun. He's uh, out there. And so... He looks, and he's like, oh, he's charged to turn right. And Dwight is like, no, that's, you can't turn right there. It's saying to bear right in order to attach on the 307. And Michael's like, no, it says turn right. And he's like, and Dwight says, you can't turn right there. There's a lake there. And so all of a sudden, there's a picture here where it says, the machine knows. Stop yelling at me. So he turns into the lake, and he goes down the ramp. And Dwight's like, it's a lake. It's a lake. He's like, the machine knows. Stop yelling at me. And just goes right into the water. And you see the, 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 the car just slowly start to sink, and they all get out and everything. And he's like, you know, Michael's like, are you okay? Like, he's, and Dwight's like, I'm fine. Like, that's what's most important. And Dwight, if you've watched the show, just very straightforward and, and weird. He's like, did you also get the rental insurance? Because that would also be very important at a time like this. And you just see Michael fades to black. So this idea, sometimes we will just listen with authority and allow someone to have authority in our lives even if to the ridiculous. Now, maybe we don't do that, but maybe we look to social media to tell us about our value, which would be equally ridiculous. Maybe we go and we think of what other people think of us is more important than what God has to say about us, which is equally as ridiculous. It's, it's saying God says you are loved and you are prayed for, you are valued, you are so important to me. And we think, yeah, but, but what about what other people think? And we end up allowing their voices to be authoritative over God's voice, and it ends up that we just drive off into a lake. See, whose voice has the most authority in your life? As we unpack the scripture and we start in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21, we start to see that when Jesus is here, he's at Capernaum, and he's in a place that would end up becoming... Um, uh, one of his main areas in which, through which he would do ministry. A lot of the disciples were from Capernaum, that he had his first miracle in Capernaum, and this time of teaching happens here in Capernaum. And so starting in verse 21, we see the first thing that Jesus has is authority in his word, authority in what he says, and how immediately the crowd in Capernaum recognizes it. So authority in word, starting in verse 21, says this, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So when he started speaking, people started listening as if what he said really mattered, that this wasn't just another sermon they had heard. It would be typical for someone to come into this Sabbath, synagogue on Sabbath and to read from the scriptures and then to share, but there was automatically something different that the people noticed about Jesus' teachings. In fact, R. Alan Cole in the commentary says this. It says that his hearers were amazed, not only at the content of his teaching, but also at the assumption of personal authority displayed in the manner of its presentation. What does that mean? 
It means that typically rabbis in this time, when in order to display that they had a knowledge of something or in order to speak authoritatively, would not rely on their own insights, but they would say, well, have we not heard from this rabbi Gamaliel that this is what the word says, what the law says, and so here's how we live off of that. They would quote other people. They would point to other sources that were agreed upon authorities by the hearers so that when the hearers would listen, they would think, okay, well, that person thinks that, and then this teacher currently is telling me this. Well, then I know that I could trust it because I can trust their sources and I can go to the authority. It's uh, If you've been with us for an amount of time, and even if this is your first time, you'll notice that we have, I'll, I'll quote other authors, other commentators, other people, because it's saying, hey, there's more to it than just what I think. There are other authoritative sources that are speaking into this. And so because Jesus just came in and he just spoke, he didn't quote anybody else. He was just able to speak clearly with power and impact and authority that people would say there's something different about him. He's not relying on the words of other people to stand upon. He stands upon it on his own. And so when we think about the authority of God's word in our lives, is it something that we take with a grain of salt that we say, oh, well, I, I appreciate God's word when it says what I want it to say. But when there's a tension point, do I allow God's word to have authority over how I live? Or do I say, well, I like these parts of God's word, but not this part. And so I'm going to just do what I want and make it malleable to my desires. Because if we do that, we're not allowing God's word to be an authority. We're just picking and choosing what we want. It reminds me of the Jefferson Bible, that if you haven't looked this up, Thomas Jefferson um, put together, he had a Bible, and what he did is he would take out and removed all the examples of there being any sort of divinity attributed to Jesus and any miraculous things. And so you could see a picture of it, and it's just like cut out words, and it's just this complete void of of what the gospels are really saying. And it's like we pick and choose. And he, in that instance, was saying he was the authority over God's word rather than having God's word be the authority over him or over us. So Jesus, he came in and he started speaking, he had authority in word, but that's not all. Because you can all hear a powerful message or you could be impacted by a sermon or something, a presentation. And you can say, wow, that was really good. But the authority goes beyond that when it comes to Jesus. Because it's not just authority in his word, it's authority in action. It's the fact that he backs up what he's saying with these subsequent actions. And so we continue on in the text. The passage will be on the screen as well, starting back up in verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. So Jesus is speaking with authority. People recognize there's something different. And then all of a sudden, an impure spirit, uh, there was a demon who was inside of this man, comes up, and he automatically, he gives Jesus authority in the sense of he says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. There's a different example in the book of Acts when there's a demonic person. There's the seven sons of Siva. Try saying that ten times fast. But the seven sons of Siva... And they all try to cast out this demon. 
And the demon is like, hey, I know Paul and I know Jesus. I don't know who you are. And in the story, I, I wish I could be making this up. In the story, the demon beats up the seven sons of Siva so much that it talks about how they run away naked after being beaten up by this demon. And so this is not something to be trifled with. And so maybe if you come into this circumstance and you think, okay, like, Demons, like that may have been something back in the day. Maybe that's just something that is um, a mental health thing that they didn't know how to, how to quantify or qualify it back then. And so, but there's this idea that there is a spiritual world that we can't downplay. And to think about this, think about being in Capernaum 2,000 years ago. Think about being someone that you know that there's a man down the road that man, he's, he just acts weird all the time. Better yet, think about Mark chapter 5 in which the, the people have a demon-possessed man who is inside the tombstones and he's locked up. And every time they know, like, that guy, there's something about him. There's something going on that there is a demon possession. There is something that cannot be explained. So while our modern minds may be naturally inclined to dismiss the spiritual world, for them... Think about the fact that they knew there was, there was evil in their midst. And in the midst of this, Jesus with authority is teaching. And then one of the impure spirits in this man comes running up and says, what are you going to do? You're going to destroy me. He already knows. The demon already knows the authority Jesus has. He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus just stops him right there. You'll notice in the book of Mark that there are lots of times where he just tells people, he'll heal people and say, don't tell anyone. He'll keep it secret because it was, the timing wasn't quite right. And he didn't want people to think that he was here as a Messiah to be the political ruler to take over and make himself king over an earthly kingdom of Jewish people. Instead, he's like, what I'm going to do for you is far greater. My authority is far bigger than a national rule. It's the kingdom rule, the kingdom of God. So we look at this and we recognize the demon right away understands who Jesus is. And it reminds us of this fact, we've talked about this recently, that being aware of who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Holy One of God, the Lord and Savior, is not enough. It's not enough just to know who he is. Because this demon knew who Jesus was. In fact, we see this James chapter 2, verse 19 continues on. He says, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. He says, you need to have both your belief and the deeds to live it out. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Because there's right theology, but if it doesn't change our hearts... And if it doesn't change our lives, it doesn't mean that we have a right relationship with God. Demons can still know who Jesus is and who God is, and yet they know the reality on that spiritual world far better than we do or that we can see, and yet they shriek, they shudder, they flee. Whereas when we realize who Jesus is, we can kneel at his feet in worship and in gratitude and surrender our lives to him. The Life Application Bible Commentary through Mark says this way, that Mark records more of Jesus' miracles than his sermons. In fact, every chapter until his final ministry in Jerusalem, which is chapter 11, 
and then the subsequent capture, trial, and execution contains at least one miracle. So Mark 1 through 10 will have at least one miracle. So Mark's Roman readers could clearly see that Jesus was a man of power and action, not just words. So yes, he has authority in his words, but it goes into his deeds, to his power, to his actions, that even the demons know who he is, and they shudder, and they shriek, and they flee. We continue on. Mark chapter 1, verse 27. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching, and what? With authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. If you read the next section, you start to see that people start crowding Peter's house where he was, that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and she starts serving and helping with food. And then all of a sudden, it's that evening, people are brought to this house because they've heard that this man, Jesus, has authority in his teaching, in his word, and with his actions. See, why does Mark record so many of the miracles? And in our series, we're not going to look at every single one of the 17 to 18 miracles that they talk about. We're going to do a representative look at it. So it's going to be miracles over nature, miracles over evil, miracles over death, miracles over sickness. And we're going to, we're going to take a look at them. But why does he record so many? We see it here. Our Alan Cole talks about it this way. He says, in Mark's gospel at least, it seems as if the chief function of the miraculous was to assert the authority of Jesus to teach and act as he did. It's that when he spoke with great power, the miracles pointed out that his power was of God, that he wasn't a charlatan, this wasn't some other person who's just, you know, trying to get followers or people to like them on Instagram. It's like this was someone who had authority and power to change things in order to have the credit and the glory be brought to God the Father because of who Jesus is. And when it talks about miracles, James Brooks says it this way as well. He says, they, miracles, are signs of the advent of the kingdom of God. Especially do the exorcisms denote the breaking down of the reign of Satan and the establishing of the reign of God. So again, picturing that you are someone from 2,000 years ago and you've seen evil in the demonic presences around you. You've seen people act in crazy ways. The fact that there was someone who came and the demons presented themselves and fled. The fact that in Mark 5, there was the demoniac who was so filled with, the, with demons that the demons asked to be cast out into a herd of pigs and they went over the edge. The fact that you saw that he in Mark 5 becomes normal of, of sane mind afterwards. The people were afraid, they were astonished, they were amazed. But it's not like, wow, this is amazing. It's, wow, this is, this is so incredible, it's actually a little fearful. Because if you have that power to cast out the demons, what kind of power do you have to know what I'm struggling with? What kind of power do you have in my life? And when presented with the authority of God's word and his actions, some of us will be afraid to the point where we'll reject them and say, please go away from this place, as they do in Mark 5. We'll say, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't want you to impede upon my little K kingdom. 
I don't want you to impede on my little, K, my little D domain. And so we, we ask God to, to keep his distance. Because if his authority is real and his power is real and his word is real and his actions are real, then we cannot interact with him and then go away unchanged. We continue on. It says this, Mark emphasized Jesus' conflict with evil powers to show his superiority over them. So he recorded many stories about Jesus driving out evil spirits. Jesus didn't have to conduct an elaborate exorcism ritual. His word was enough to send out the demons. Jesus' power over demons reveals his absolute power over Satan, even in a world that seems to be in Satan's control. Don't we look around sometimes and we look, man, the enemy's running rampant and there's no hope anymore. We look and we see the depravity of our culture on the outside. And then when we're in our moments of honesty, we can see the depravity of our own sinful flesh on the inside. And we think, man, it seems like the devil won. Or it seems like there's so much going on. How can there ever be hope for redemption or restoration or for good to triumph over evil? So Jesus' very first miracle recorded in the book of Mark is comes on the heels of speaking with great authority through the word, and then he is able to exemplify it through pushing the demons away and to sending him out so that people would see this guy is not just a clever wordsmith. He is the word. This guy has power not because he can quote someone else, but because he is the one who was there from the very beginning. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Now, they wouldn't know all this right away. It's revealed over time. But they would be confronted with the fact that there really is evil. And there really is victory over evil. And that victory over evil can only come through Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to make a, a small guess right now as we have just a couple minutes remaining in our sermon that some of you, again, this, I, I totally understand it. And so some of you are listening to this and you're politely listening because you're, but you're thinking, I, I don't believe in any of this demonic or, or the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. I don't believe that this is something that actually happens. Or maybe I believe that it happened in the past, but now we have you know, medication for that or something else for that. But there is still evil in the world. We can't deny that there are things that are just evil. But you and I, as Timothy Keller says, there's two ways that we can approach this dynamic of evil. There's actually two mistakes we can make when it comes to looking at evil in the world, the, the demonic, the, the um, spiritual forces of evil. There are two equal and opposite errors into which people can fall when it comes to this whole subject of devils and the demonic. There are these two errors, and you can remember them like this. There's superstition, and then there is substition. I'm only going to take a couple moments to unpack these because we, we'll, we'll spend more time on it later in a few months. But superstition is this. It's this idea of overbelief. It's thinking that everything that happens in our lives is a spiritual attack. By superstition, we mean an unhealthy overinterest in the subject and attributing too much power to them. It's like the idea of always wanting to, to read and hear about evil things. And then saying, oh, well, the evil actually has more power than Jesus does. It's thinking that if I can't find two socks that match, well, then the devil's after me today. 
Like it's thinking that everything can be a spiritual attack to the point where we give far too much credit to the enemy. Whereas 1 John 4 says that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That the enemy does, Satan does have power, but it dwarfs in comparison into the power of God. And so there's this idea of superstition. We put too much emphasis on evil. But then the other side is substition, which is, as, as Timothy Keller would put it, that's like under-belief. So if super is over, sub is under. Substition is either disbelief in them at all. So I, I just don't believe that there's evil. I just don't believe that there's demonic. I just don't believe that there's a spiritual forces that are around us. I just don't believe it. Or generally a kind of riding them out of your day-to-day existence. Or you say, I believe it exists, but I don't think it impacts me. So sooner or later, Warren Wearsby says it this way, sooner or later, we all, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than he is apart from the Lord. So we need someone with authority to speak into our lives, to be the one to whom we can run when we are struggling, when we are tempted, when we are hurting. That we talked about how God does not tempt us beyond what we can handle. So we run to him and we say, I'm struggling with this, Lord, will you help me? That we have a savior who took the brunt of all of our past sin, past, present, and future. All of our sins of commission, the things that we've committed and done wrong that we shouldn't have. All of our sins of omission, the things that we've omitted that we should have done but didn't. He takes all sin, past, present, future of you, me, and everyone and He defeats sin, Satan, and death on the cross. It's more than just a a, a powerful story. It's life change. And it's acknowledging the authority that Jesus had as he was the only one who could have lived a perfect life and who died that horrible death and was raised back to new life to give us the eternal life that none of us could have earned or deserved on our own. And that commentary lists out some of the things that Jesus has authority, this astounding authority. So I'm going to do a quick list here. It says, Jesus' authority extended to every area of spiritual life and concern. He had authority in his teaching. We just read that in Mark 1, 22 and 27. Authority over demons. We just saw that in 125. You also see that um, in, Matthew, in Mark 5, 6 and 7. The authority to forgive sins from Mark 2. The authority over the temple and its administration, that's when the, peop- the religious leader says, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, well, do you think that John the Baptist was from heaven or from earth? And they say, well, if we say that he's from heaven and then we killed him, then the people will be mad at us. But if we say he's from earth, they'll be mad at us because they won't believe him. So we don't, we don't know. And then Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I have, but I have it. Then we see, lastly, the authority to continue through the disciples, the attack against demonic power. So in Mark 3, 15 and Mark 6, 7, he's sending out the 12 and he says, I give you authority to cast out demons or to cast out impure spirits. So the authority that Jesus has is far reaching. And so the the commentary asks this question, have you given him authority over your life? Have you, have I, have we given Jesus, the one that through his words can astound people and through his actions can amaze people, have we given him authority over our lives? So we end the sermon with the same question we started with. Whose voice has the most authority in your life?
Is it what you want when you want it? Are you the utmost authority? And we keep Jesus as a spare tire that only when we're in big trouble we ask for help or uh, some, some um, aspirin or, or migraine medicine that only when you're in pain you come to him. Can you come to him with that? Absolutely. And if you've never followed him, can you come to him to ask for his intervention? You're like, of course. But do we only use him in an as-needed basis? Or do we recognize that because of his authority, we always need him? And his word and his teaching are the basis of our entire lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later. Lord, I pray that, um, that you would speak to each and every one of us. As we talk about miracles, which maybe some of us don't feel very comfortable with or unsure about, as we talk about the spiritual realm of demons and, and angels and recognize that there's spiritual forces that we don't see, maybe some of us feel even less comfortable talking about that. But Lord, when we put your word as the authority in our lives, we recognize the truth that evil does exist. And no amount of our good deeds, no amount of our own self-will, no amount of our ability will be able to withstand the evil around us. So we rely on you, Jesus, and we fall at your feet. And we recognize that your voice ought to have the most authority in our lives. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.